In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to another episode of In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I'm Sid Mulcahy from Bernstein's Toronto office, and with me today is our food packaging analyst, Alexia Howard. Brands were once held in the highest regard. They earned our trust over decades, which slowly has been eroded. The internet slowly democratized advertising, and new brands are popping up everywhere. As a former insider, Alexia has a unique perspective on how the food packaging industry has evolved over the past few decades and how she thinks it'll evolve over the next few. Without further ado, Alexia, welcome. Great to be here. So all of our Bernstein analysts pretty much have an amazing, unique background. I think yours is literally no exception. Can you just walk us through how you ended up here on Wall Street? Good question. So like many of the Bernstein analysts, I was a strategy consultant for over a decade before I joined Bernstein 18 years ago. So I had the fortune, I guess, to try working in lots of different industries. I definitely gravitated towards the food space. As you can probably tell, I'm not from this side of the pond. I was originally from the UK, but during my career, as I went through business school, I ended up over on this side of the pond and worked with Nabisco for a few years. That was the path in. And then actually, it was a business connection. It was a client of mine who ended up running Pepperidge Farm at Campbell's Soup. But we worked together at Nabisco in Canada, and she was the one that mentioned my name to the Bernstein recruiter. And as I say, the rest is history. It's pretty amazing because it seems like you've worked at practically every aisle of the grocery store that I think I walk through, and you've worked with practically every brand. So can you just walk us through why it was so hard to build a brand, let's say 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, when I first started here and during my consulting career, it was very hard for new brands to break into the market. To begin with, there was this very, very strong and symbiotic relationship between the biggest brands and the biggest retailers that really acted as an incredible barrier to entry. Not only that, but it was only the biggest brands that could afford a $30 million national TV advertising campaign back in the 80s and the 90s. And if I wanted to start a food brand, I'd have to build a plant myself. And given how many brands fail in this market, the investment up front to start a new food brand would just prevent people from doing that. So things have changed, I think. But back then, it was really, really tough. So the retailer relationship, advertising was sort of a a barrier to entry, as well as capital in order to build a manufacturing plant. So let's break all of those three things down. Who do you think owns the customer relationship today? Is it the retailer or the brand itself? And when do you think this switch ended up happening? I think both of them now have a relationship with the customer. I think historically, back in the 50s to the 90s, when it was the manufacturer brands that were talking directly to the consumer during the original soap operas that were selling things on TV, at that point, It was definitely the manufacturers that owned the brands and owned the relationship with the customers, I think, most strongly. And the retailer was just a conduit, a channel. I think over the last five, 10 years, things have changed. And the retailer now has much more information about what's in the consumer's basket, what they're buying and what they're switching from and to when they come back and forth from the grocery store. So I think the retailer has a lot more information and is a lot more sophisticated these days. So the balance of power has shifted, I think, from the the manufacturers, the real owners of the brands to the retailers. And the retailers are now really able to get much more personalized 
in the way that they uh, reach out to their consumers through loyalty programs and online shopping. And that's really put a lot more power in the hands of the retailers. In terms of other sort of barriers to entry, it seemed like you needed a real big national campaign. You needed to be on the Super Bowl. You need to be somewhere really big in order to advertise, not just even in soap operas as well. But now it seems like digital media is sort of democratizing that. You've got people like Mr. Beast that can come out, has got enough views more so than like the Super Bowl itself on each episode, and he's launching, you know, new brands. So when did this happen and has digital media really democratized brand building? Yes, so I think this has been a real shift that's happened over the last decade. The idea of digital advertising on Facebook, on a lot of the social media platforms, it's really changed things dramatically. And obviously, it's a lot easier, it's a lot cheaper, and it's a lot easier to target particular types of individuals, whether it's by income or profiling them online, maybe not down to the individual, but you can certainly get a lot more targeted these days than you were able to 10, 15 years ago. So yes, digital advertising has really enabled some of these new challenger brands that I call them to bubble up over the last 10, 15 years or so. And we've seen brands like Skinny Pop Popcorn, Kind Snack Bars, Chobani Greek Yogurt, I think was kind of the first one that really was the canary in the coal mine that took half of General Mills market share in Yacht Play back then. So things have really changed. And I think the digital advertising shift has really allowed that to happen. And you also mentioned that capital to build a manufacturing plant used to be a barrier to entry. How has that changed? How have these challenger brands been able to scale up? So the rise of the co-manufacturing industry or co-packing industry has really been quite pronounced over the last 15, 20 years. So as I mentioned back in the day, in the 80s, 90s and before, if I wanted to start a new food brand, I'd have to figure out how to build a plant to make it. Whereas now, I think actually it was almost an own goal on the part of the industry because at some point, a lot of the big manufacturers decided that because the hit rate on new products is fairly low, if you're trying something a bit different, even a big brand doesn't really want to invest in manufacturing capabilities to do something that's a little different from what they currently can produce in-house. And so they started to outsource a lot of their early stage new products to third-party co-manufacturers that would make the product for them. And once it reached a certain size, if it was successful in the marketplace, they could then bring it back in-house. But you didn't want to do the upfront investment if you didn't have to. But of course, by creating those co-manufacturers, that then opened the doors to anybody to come in and start their own brand because uh, you could do it much more cheaply without having to build your own manufacturing facilities. And so what we saw, particularly after 2012 or so, I think was an explosion of what I've called these challenger brands that were generally cleaner label. They had a more natural positioning. The mere fact that they were sort of local brands rather than national, I think had a certain appeal. But we've certainly seen those come up a lot, I would say, over the last decade. Certainly, they went away during the pandemic because a lot of the supply chain problems were really challenging. But if we go back to sort of 2012, 2013 or so, it was a big change in the industry, this rise of the challenger brands that happened in the subsequent years. It's a really interesting concept of just like sowing the seeds of your own demise. (laughs) But that seems like what the food packaging industry did. If you look at all of those three different buckets, It seemed like that was the food packaging industry's moat, and that was the role of a brand at one point. They could pretty much bring anything to market, 
They had manufacturing, they could kind of like advertise uh, nationally, and then they had an amazing retailer relationship. But it seemed like, you know, also around that 2012, 2013 period, there was this erosion of consumer trust. Um, you started to see a lot of things posted online about what was actually in these products, the ingredients, the fact that it wasn't really healthy or it wasn't good from a wellness perspective. So how did these brands end up losing some customer trust and letting some of these challenger brands get in? So I think that what really happened was the rise of social networking combined with a lot more mainstream media coverage of issues with packaged food. I do think that 2012 was kind of a pivotal moment for this because that was the year that we had the Proposition 37 vote on GMO, genetically modified organism labeling in California. And that kind of acted as a touchstone for a lot of the mainstream media to start to cover not just genetically modified ingredients, but also artificial flavors, artificial colors, hormones and antibiotics in the dairy and meat industry. There was a lot of coverage and I think education of the consumer back then about problems with these uh, ultra-processed foods maybe not being good if you consume too many of them over the long term. As a result, I think that created a window for these new challenger brands to come in with their cleaner label, clean ingredients, and really make a pitch to a certain consumer group that found that appealing and as a result, we did see market share losses over the subsequent three or four, five years. And I do think, I mean, when we got to the Consumer Analyst Group of New York, the Cagney Conference in February of 2014, and you had the CEO of uh, Campbell Soup talking about how big brands had lost the trust of the consumer, that was kind of a watershed moment for the industry as the investors in the room and the companies in the room sort of acknowledged that there had been a breach of trust that these ingredients weren't necessarily serving people's health. And so we have seen the companies uh, do a lot of reformulation, I would say, over the last 10 years or so. You know, if brands are built on a foundation of trust and they lost it, how do they end up even regaining it back? I think it took time. I think a few things happened. I think that moment of the Proposition 37 vote in California kind of went. So it, there was a very sort of strong backlash against heavily processed foods in that 2012, 2013, 2014 period. But it eased away over time. The news media went off onto other topics. Companies themselves listened and they started doing a number of things. They reformulated products. So they were taking some of the more egregious ingredients out, simplifying the ingredient lists, uh, making it easier and more palatable and more acceptable for the consumers to choose the products. I also think a lot of the big manufacturers started to switch up their portfolios. So selling things that were very heavily processed and falling out of favor with consumers and buying things that were more on trend with consumers. Um, so I think we've seen a recognition on the part of the companies that something was amiss and they've started to try to move things in a better direction. You know, I always view company transformations. It seems like a lot of this stuff sounds easy, but, you know, just change out the ingredients, change out the formulas. But I'm assuming that's an incredibly hard task. I realize that over the past 30, 40 years, you know, they've made all of these products more shelf stable. It required a long laundry list of adding different types of ingredients. So how big a task is this to actually make this pivot? I think it's a pretty big deal. The most recent sort of big shift on ingredients was the trans fat elimination that happened about 20 years ago, 18 years ago or so. 
and to take the trans fats out of an Oreo were a big deal. It's not just the cost, but it's also the time it takes to do it because you've got to make sure that the mouthfeel is right and you don't want to replace one ingredient with something that's even more complicated. So yes, no, it's it's not an easy thing to do to reformulate these products, but that's what the companies have embarked upon over the last, I would say, 10 years or so there's been a real effort to try to move things in a better direction. Now, sometimes it backfires. So the most interesting example of that was Trix, the cereal product that's very brightly colored and, you know, with neon colored things that are very appealing to kids. So General Mills went out of the way and they changed the colors out for something that was much more natural. But as a result, they looked a lot more muted and rather than neon, they were pastel. And unfortunately, that consumer group that's buying tricks isn't particularly worried. You know, they, they want them to look like the product that they know and know and love. And so that particular effort to simplify ingredients and, and make it more natural just didn't work and they had to go back to the original. That's funny. General Mills should stick to the motto, silly rabbit tricks are for kids. But it also goes to tell you like, you know, if Coke tried to reformulate Coke, which they did back in the 80s, causes a huge backlash. So, you know, as soon as you start to change the formula and change the taste, like things start to spiral downwards. So, okay, if we were to think about like the consumer starting to see clean label, what other differences do you think they'll see? So why don't we walk through the grocery store? Do you think that there will be a hollowing out of the center of the store where all of these brands are housed and there'll be more meat and produce and, I don't know, alternative milks and so forth slowly taking over the grocery store? What will the consumer see? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the store evolves over the next 5, 10, 15 years. It strikes me that coming from the UK, there was a big transformation that happened in the UK 20, 30, probably almost 40 years ago as I was leaving school, what we saw over there was consumers recognizing that fresh prepared foods, like more convenient, but still fairly simple and fresh products was a really exciting revolution that Marks and Spencers brought to the UK in the late 80s, early 90s. And then Tesco's and Sainsbury's had to pile in and, and um, emulate that. And the, the joke at the time was that you could basically host a dinner party and kind of palm off a lot of these fresh prepared foods as homemade products and which ones really pass the test on that. The US, I don't think ever really got that memo at the same time. I remember going into a Jewel Osco, I think it was in Chicago back in the late 90s and thinking, oh my gosh, this looks like a Tesco's from the 1970s because you had the products piled really high on the shelf and it was all shelf stable packaged boxed food. And I remember scratching my head at the time and thinking, why haven't the American consumers and retailers kind of gotten on the fresh prepared food bandwagon? Because it, it seems so much more authentic. And then I realized, I guess, through many years of consulting and doing this job, that actually that old model of piling it high with boxed and shelf-stable packaged food was by far the most profitable business model for both the retailers and the manufacturers. You didn't have to worry about perishability the supply chain problems associated with all that. It was by far the easiest model. So keeping things like that for as long as possible was absolutely the right way to go. Now, I think the advent of new formats like the Whole Foods Market kind of got people more aware of what at-home food could look like. And so I think we have seen this sort of shift in what the consumer expects in terms of a better selection of not just fresh produce, but fresh prepared foods, things that are sort of convenient, but also seem more authentic, really trying to sort of emulate what you'd get in a restaurant, but with an at-home formula. 
I think before the pandemic, we were absolutely seeing the retailers move in that direction. The refrigerated sections of the store were getting bigger. These fresh prepared foods were definitely coming up and becoming more popular. You could see it in what the retailers were saying on their earnings calls. They were really trying to woo people into the store using these fresh prepared offerings. Now, I think the pandemic knocked that on the head. Obviously, in the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. We're going to hunker down to um, bare bones, whatever the supply chain can actually support. So a lot of those smaller brands and a lot of those fresh prepared, the deli area really withered during covid Um, So that all took a hit. But now that we're emerging from the other side, supply chains are fixing themselves, everything's getting back to normal. I think we will start to see these fresh prepared offerings come back to life. It's such a great point where you actually saw like a pause in prepared food as opposed to that sort of unwinding. I guess nobody could Lysol wipes fresh prepared food during the pandemic. What other changes do you think we'll see in the future? So we've talked about, you know, the grocery store itself, but what about the future of food itself? Are we going to see beyond meat or more alternative meats? Are we going to see more plant-based alternatives, whether it's milks or proteins? Where do you think the future of food is going to take us? I think there's loads of exciting developments that are happening in this industry and will continue to happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, You mentioned alternative proteins. So obviously we saw soy milk evolve into almond milk and then ultimately oat milk. uh, And that whole area has exploded as people recognize that plant-based options might be better for the planet and better for you in some cases. On top of that, we've obviously seen the impossible foods and beyond meat revolution in the plant-based burger world and meat world generally. Uh, Although at the moment that's kind of suffering a bit of a a decline at the moment after an initial faddish phase where everybody wanted to try them. So what do I think is going on there? Well, I think that the beyond meat and impossible foods at at a similar time basically launched products that were leagues better and more appealing to flexitarian consumers and not just vegetarians and vegans, but they were products that looked as though they bled. They looked like real meat. And suddenly they exploded into the refrigerated section of the store in the very high traffic fresh meat area of the store. I remember the first time I saw a case of Beyond Meat in the refrigerated area of a Whole Foods in Brooklyn. I was like, wow, you know, this is something that's really different and revolutionary. It was the first time I'd seen anything like it. And so I think that leapfrogging out of the frozen vegetarian or vegan aisle, which is very low traffic, into that mainstream fresh meat part of the store for these plant-based Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers was a huge step forward for the plant-based industry. I think the trouble was the products were very good, much better than we'd seen before, but truth be told, they're not exactly the same and they're not quite as craveable as animal meat is and if you prepare them badly you might have a bad experience with them and not only that but they are still quite a lot more expensive than animal meat and so for the regular joe on the street if you've got a product that's not quite as good as the original animal version and it's more expensive there's no real reason to keep going back and trying it Now, where do I think we're going to go from here? Because obviously the products seem to have been largely now relegated back to the frozen vegetarian aisle. So I think what's going to happen next is we're going to start to see hybrid products coming to the market. And what I mean by that is we've got the beginnings of the cultivated meat and cultivated fat 
opportunity emerging now. So this is the ability to grow fat cells. So fat cells that are the same as your bacon fat or or your pork fat or your chicken fat, but to grow them in a bioreactor rather than having them come from an animal. Same thing with cultivated meat cells. You can have muscle cells that are cultivated in a, in a bioreactor rather than coming from an animal. Now, I think fat is going to come first. And I think if you can start to incorporate some component of cultivated fat into your plant-based burger structure, it's going to really improve the taste and texture of those products, or the taste initially, and then ultimately uh, with the muscle cells, the texture as well. But the taste, I think, is going to be key. And if we can get that closer to authentic, then I think that the consumer has a reason to try the products again to come back. Obviously, at the same time, the other important factor is bringing the costs down. So getting the scale right so that these products can start to come down towards or even below the animal meat products. And then the code, I think, will be cracked. Other things that will be coming down the pike, I think more personalization. If you remember uh, Campbell's Soup, probably about 10 years ago, maybe not quite that long, had uh, an investment in a company called Habit, uh, which was one of those areas where you sent off a sample, and I can't remember whether it was blood or saliva, but it was the idea was that you sent uh, something of your DNA away to be analyzed, and it would tell you what types of food you should be eating, and, and then it would even personalize a meal plan for you. Now, I think at the time, the science behind that kind of personalization really wasn't there, uh, or it wasn't there to the same degree as, as we have today. So I think over time, there is going to be a move towards these more personalized uh, approaches to nutrition. I think there's other developments like hydroponics. I mean, when I go into my my store, in my local store, I can now buy salad greens that actually last a lot longer, that are not grown with pesticides. And yes, they're, they're probably a bit more expensive, but they actually seem to be a lot cleaner than something that's grown and nibbled on by the, uh, the various bugs out there. But these hydroponic uh, leafy greens, I think, are a pretty interesting development, although I'm not sure from an environmental standpoint exactly whether they really get us very far, but that seems to be an interesting development. I think we're going to see a lot of other stuff come down the pike. Artificial sweeteners, I think, are giving way to people wanting more authenticity, but low calorie sweeteners. So we've seen a bit of a move in that direction with stevia. But I think stevia has been not been that acceptable to a lot of people from a taste perspective. So there's now even more um, interesting developments on the horizon, like rare sugars like allulose, which are found in nature, can be commercially produced now. We're even beginning to see on the horizon things like low or no calorie fats that might also solve some of the uh, the calorie issues down there. So lots of new developments in the world of technology here. Absolutely fascinating. I think you've talked about what we'll probably be eating in the future, where we're getting it from, how we're getting it. This is going to be an odd question and it's probably going to be outside your wheelhouse, but how does Ozempic, as well as you know other changes in pharma, change our food habits and our consumption? It's a great question. And it's certainly coming down the pike in terms of the uptake of these new weight loss drugs. Or they're not, some of them are not new, but the idea of applying them to weight loss is really interesting. So I've spoken to people, I've been reading the chat rooms about it. It does seem as though it's a pretty revolutionary solution to the obesity problem, which has obviously been around for many decades and has been worsening over time, not just in the US, but uh, also in other developed countries and even further afield around the world. 
looking at the numbers today, if you look at the actual data from the pharmaceutical companies that are producing these legitimate patented products, it seems as though less than 1% of the US population is currently using these drugs. So it's probably too soon to be making a really big difference uh, in the industry today. But over time, we can see that the rate of uptake is accelerating and accelerating fairly quickly. So this is going to become a feature of the landscape, I believe, over the next few years. And obviously, there are several things that I think are going to be critical. Will these drugs be allowed to be paid by the insurance companies? So at the moment, they cost maybe $1,200, $1,300 a month, which is obviously beyond most people's means. But if it's covered by insurance to reduce weight and then hopefully reduce the risk of other health complications that come with obesity. If it's covered by the insurance companies, then I think that could really open the door to demand. Um, I also think that having options that maybe don't have to be injected once a week at home, but uh, can be taken orally, that would obviously make it a lot more acceptable to consumers. And then I think that, you know, do the costs of the drugs, if, if the insurance doesn't cover it, do the costs of the drugs eventually come down to encourage uptake further? I think at the moment, the bottleneck is, is really production. And so as further production has ramped up, the uptake is increasing. Now, what's not clear is exactly how these compounding facilities around the country are playing a role in here. If you look on the, the Facebook chat rooms and you look on the adverts in these web chats, it seems to me that there's a lot of these compounding pharmacies that are making or are purporting to be able to make versions of these drugs that somehow get around a patent uh, in a slightly different way, but sell it for a fraction of the price. I don't know how prevalent that is at the moment. I certainly have seen articles, um, there's been articles in a lot of the mainstream press recently about how the FDA and certainly the pharmaceutical companies are really trying to clamp down on all of that activity. So again, that probably gets constrained over time. But talking to people that are actually using the drugs, they are game changers, they do suppress appetite. And as a result, you know, if you're talking about people collectively losing however many thousands of pounds over time, then that probably will have an impact on demand for packaged food. Uh, exactly how that'll play out across the industry is going to be really interesting to see how it affects the industry. But yes, it's certainly something we're watching closely. Incredible. Just fascinating how consumption habits might change. Why don't we just end off with sort of a nice gentle question. Let's talk about your consumption habits. What is your favorite indulgence processed food, food packaging item? And you could go with Cadbury if you want to keep it British. <laughs> I'm going to be honest and say I have discovered this new yogurt, which I would consider to be a processed food, even though it's fairly innocuous. But oh my gosh, this thing is called La Fermière and it has lavender, rose, orange blossom. I discovered these things about two, three weeks ago and I, I am obsessed at this point. They come in these little clay pots. It cost me $3.69, uh, so I'm not eating them every day. But boy, they remind me of a gooseberry fool, you know, which I really, really miss out of the UK. And they are absolutely delicious. Expensive, but delicious indulgences. I would absolutely recommend them. That's fantastic. I could still remember when I was growing up, one of the biggest indulgences I used to have was going by the fridge. And I'm in Canada. There was the McCain Deep and Delicious Cake 
It used to cost $2. I almost used to eat it all by myself. A very happy indulgence that always takes me back to my childhood. And with that, Alexia, thank you so much for joining on this podcast. I know that we can potentially talk forever about the changes in the food packaging industry, but thanks again. Absolutely. Great speaking with you. Thanks, Sid. Thank you for listening to the latest In The Know podcast with Bernstein Research. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.